0: For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use, primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host, and if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight, and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End of For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, and I'm here today with uh, my friend, Steve Castile. He is a pastor here in Mississippi, and I'm super excited that he's joining us. We've had great conversations over the last couple of years, um, he has such a pastoral heart and insight into um, how we handle substance use and addiction, particularly in um, faith-based spaces. And so I really just wanted to get his perspective on that and on his own journey of um, kind of reshaping how he thinks about those things. And so, Steve, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you for asking me to be here and what you and End For Good do. It's, it's awesome.
0: Well, thanks. Give us, um, I prefer not to read bios and just ask people to tell us about themselves. So give us kind of your, your one minute. You have had a, um, a long career. You're about to head into retirement. Um, what, what have you been doing over the last 30, 40 years?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, grew up in Columbus, Mississippi, uh, got a call to ministry early in my life. Uh, Went on to state and got an undergraduate degree in social work and corrections. And so early on, kind of the tenor of my ministry was set by that arena of outside the walls of the church. Uh, Went to seminary at Emory, uh, came back and served a sequence of churches across Mississippi. And in each congregation just encountered, um, you know, a different perspective of faith and addiction. And uh, one of the things that's just struck me is as I went deeper into my ministry, the more I understood that in religion, there's a difference between faith and religion and a difference in the way we deal with some of the common uh, kind of social work issues like criminals, like addiction, uh, you know, just so many things. And, and I've learned a, a ton across that process.
0: So what was, can you remember back to the the first time you encountered drug user addiction in your pastoral ministry? Um, what was that? How did you kind of respond to that? What was that kind of introduction for you um, in specifically in your ministry context?
1: Well, my first ministry context, I was youth minister at my home church, and it was right in the peak of the launching of the war on drugs. And I can remember uh, we tried to create an atmosphere there at the church. It was so seventies, we'd we'd do the coffee tables and tried to bring music in, and uh, every day at the school I was in, there were locker raids, and there were this sense of of a of a different era, and and in that time there was this intensity uh, of you know we we have a war on our hands, and it's it's uh, it's a crazy thing, and so uh, the posture I took as youth minister was what can we do to bring resources. Uh, to help us kind of fight this fight that kids are struggling with, and uh, it, I watched it play out in the lives of some of my youth, both the alcohol and and the early some of the heavy drug use and so that that was really my first encounter that was that was going to be a part of my ministry
0: hmm. so do you remember when you kind of started? shifting the way that you think about drugs and addiction, criminalizing versus more health-centered approaches. Was that a, a, a light bulb moment for you? Is that kind of a, a journey? Um, what did that look like for you?
1: Well, it was really a litany of, of learning. It was just kind of like I had different aha moments. When I came back from seminary, there was a, a good friend of the families who was battling alcoholism and watching Uh, how the congregation responded to him, uh, came to worship one day, and uh, just, you know, in a very kind of brusque way, you know, met me at the back door after my sermon, damn good sermon preacher, and the little blue-haired ladies kind of descended upon him and me, and all of a sudden, I realized, you know, this is a friend of our family. Yeah, he has an issue, but, you know, the ostracization and and the stigmatization just really grabbed a hold of me. And it made me angry at first, but I I couldn't think of it in a systemic way. It was just an incidental thing was, wait, this is a person I know and people are not treating me right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, from there on, it was just almost in every appointment, it kind of took a different scope. When I uh, went to my next appointment, we were in North Mississippi. We were in a little subdivision that was kind of like a we laugh. We call it our little patent place. There were just all kinds of family issues and divorces. And one day in our board meeting, they're saying, Somebody's selling drugs on the dam in Bridgetown and we need to do something about it. And so the fathers all lined up and would go and pull in front and back of the guy selling the drugs out of his car when the bus would come. And so it was kind of this pendulum swing of, Oh, this is a tough thing. We've got to protect our kids. But then, you know, going back and uh Later on, we had somebody in in that church uh, lose a child to addiction, and uh, it began to really kind of anchor down that uh, this is a story of people, not not a war on drugs. But uh, the the collateral damage in this war is really the 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 deaths and the consequences are happening with the people, not the drugs. And so I kind of shifted back into that social work mode of, okay, how do we how do we approach this with thoughtfulness and caring? And Mm. uh, it, it, it began the migration. And then it was incident after incident that uh, just kind of led me and began to bump up against uh, this whole idea of the criminalization and also the stigmatization of that within the faith-based community.
0: Mm. Yeah. That seems like it's such a big part of um, people's experience, not just people who are struggling with maybe a substance use disorder, but their families as well, which, you know, statistically now, I think it's one in three families as a family member who is struggling with the, a drug addiction. If you include all these other kinds of addictions, it's literally everyone um, and probably all of us, we all have unhealthy coping mechanisms for the hard things in our lives or wanting to change the way that we feel. Uh, why do you think that is it tends to be my experience lots of people have told me this is their experience why that tends to be stronger in faith communities um, even in the broader community where that stigmatization is already pretty strong Um, what do you think are some of the contributing factors to why people tend to to feel that stigmatization so much stronger sometimes within a faith community where they might hope to to for it to be the opposite
1: well I I think when I was doing my social work, field work, and did work in prisons, uh, I came to realize that, you know, in culture, we're much more comfortable um, removing the problem from our presence and thought than we are with dealing with it. We'd rather create laws and systems than we would relationships and go through the process of, of restoration. And when I was dealing with the prisons, it was just we were there for incarceration, not rehabilitation and I think the faith based community is kind of in the midst of of calling people to live righteous and good lives have kind of reduced and distilled uh the lives of people into this sense of they've just chosen to sin and make bad choices, and even though choices are a part of it, the longer I've been in the ministry, the more I understand that that the connections uh, culturally with poverty with broken families with trauma with so many things this just isn't a, a choice to be a bad person this is people who are trying to cope with with situations in their life and they don't need uh, to be criminalized they they need to be rehabilitated and and the, you know in the faith community uh, people are well intentioned but we just have this sense that we want to categorize people. And it's so much easier because a lot of times people in addiction, no matter what class or what they're addicted to, are messy. And, 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 you know, you and I know in the conversation in the recovery community, the idea the cure to addiction is not just sobriety, it's connection and creating relationships. And our system is built for just the opposite we further traumatize people by removing them from the significant connections that could in any way redeem them. Uh, And I think to sum it up, there's a a book uh, that I encountered about the middle of my ministry called The Safest Place on Earth. And the writer, Larry Crabb, just writes saying of all the places, the church should be the place where people find their refuge. But instead, he, he talks about the upper room and the lower room. Instead, we live in the lower room of judgment where we're comfortable rather than going to the upper room of community and 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 the faith we're called to of being in communion with each other. And um, that has kind of become my clearing call is, is how do we create a faith community where we're about the work of restoration and redemption, not isolation and punishment?
0: Mm. I love what you said, too, about it's easier to to remove the problem rather than deal with the problem. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody maybe last year um, about kind of homelessness related to addiction and things like that. Um, and it kind of came up in the conversation that, you know, at least if we criminalize addiction, we can remove people from our view who are struggling, who may have, it, it has descended to the point where maybe they don't have the resources anymore and they um, are experiencing homelessness And and that it really was kind of a shocking thought to me. I don't think I'd ever really crystallized before that, you know, if you don't, if you don't see people, you can, you can just assume that there's not a problem. Um, We don't really think about the fact that, well, they're still there. Where are they? If we don't see them, where are they? Are they sitting in our jails and prisons? Um, Which may make us feel better and it may take the problem away from our view, but it, it hasn't fix the problem. We still have the, the same root causes of the the hurt and whatever that's going on in their life. When they come back out, it's going to be the same thing over again. Um, that was a really convicting thing. I think to me to just think through how much I tend to, uh, appreciate what I can see versus what is real, like what's most true. Um, just because I can't see people anymore because they're incarcerated doesn't mean the problem is not there. Um, And it gives me sort of a false sense that we have dealt with something that we haven't dealt with.
1: No, no. Uh, You know, as you and I met through uh, your husband who does the foster care and one of our members in the church had gotten a foster child and and much like y'all had dealt with a family in addiction and watching her kind of awaken to the fact that, you know, she wasn't saving that child she was impacting the the framework of a family and that, uh, you know, all of a sudden when she saw the struggle that the parents were going through dealing with their addiction, she just came and, and talked to me about the fact that, you know, I'm so ashamed at the way that I have thought about these families who are giving up these little children because they'd rather have crack than the kids. And she said, the more I see the, the, tension they live in the tumult their lives are uh the more compassion and 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 the more convicted i feel about the need for us to do this a different way and that's kind of where i've come is when you dehumanize something and you know immediately when we criminalize something we in a way dehumanize the people and we segregate them from the rest of us somehow creating a hierarchy uh, to use faith language of our sins that, that uh, kind of allow us not to get dirty. And it's kind of like the days of old when the leopards had go around saying unclean, unclean. And, you know, as as I do the spiritual direction at Clearview, I look at the faces of people who have been treated like that, the majority uh, of their life and their addiction And their disassociation and their withdrawal and the internal scars and shame uh, are just overwhelming. And those aren't things we want to experience. Life has enough uh, issues in it that people just don't want to take that on. But for me as a faith-based person, that's our job. That's our call. That's why I went into this is how do we help folks who are really struggling? Jesus said, you know, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. And I, I I think that uh, rather than us creating this clear uh, than thou community, we should just have dirt all over us. We should have uh, a, a friend of mine, Rudy Rasmus, pastors uh, one of the largest uh, churches in Houston. About 40% of their congregation is homeless. And he has a rule. He said, We have the smell rule. If you can't sit by somebody who smells, you can't go to church here. And it's, It's truly that sense when you go in, the the dog pound in the balcony is is drug dealers and and the prostitutes from the community lives in who come there because they're welcome and who begin to use the services uh, because they were changed. Uh, Rudy himself was a person whose dad ran the brothel there and he was supposed to inherit it and uh, Mm. met with a wife who brought compassion and changed his life. And so he spent his old ministry trying to create the culture that I wish we all had where um, all are welcome and we're about restoration and redemption, um, not about segregation and wait until Jesus comes back.
0: Hmm. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. So, I want to switch gears a little bit and um, talk a, about sort of pastoral responses. I saw this interesting study recently. Um, Lifeway Research did a study among pastors, and they found that the majority of pastors support criminalizing cannabis to some extent. So there was a separate question about whether it was right or wrong to get high on cannabis. So this was a separate question from, should people be using it? It was a question of, you know, should it be legal for, you know, recreational use? Should it be legal for all purposes? Um, and the majority of pastors said no. So, uh, it's interesting to me. I'd love your take on why, why that is, I can definitely see why there's certainly a lot of gray area around, you know, is it okay to get high versus not? Um, but particularly for pastors on the the question of uh, should it be criminal or should it not be criminal? Um, what is your sort of perspective on why that is that so many pastors would, would put it in that category of it, it, it should not be legal um, for, you know, whatever purposes, but, but should be criminal.
1: Well, I think it's really two things. One is, is, you know, when I read chasing the screen um, you begin to understand the intense kind of disinformation and uh, that goes around uh, cannabis and other things and the betrayal of it as this, you know, uh, demon drug, that's the gateway to other drugs. And so I think a lot of it is, is people hold on to that because it becomes a real powerful tool to then uh, say we need to criminalize it because crazy people kill people that are on pot. And it's this uh, different picture. I think the other part is as as shepherds, uh, we tell ourselves that our job is to protect our flock from the wolves. And so part of, we've come to understand is, is those who use drugs are wolves. They're, you know, if you're going to use drugs, you're going to try to get other people to use drugs. And, you know, ironically, it's the same argument that was used in prohibition with alcohol. Uh, And, you know, I think one of the logical progressions is, uh, I've come as a pastor, and it's not a sense of resignation, but come to understand that there are things that take life, and there are things that give life. And that, that in my faith, Jesus was concerned about bringing life. And a lot of times in the faith community and other places, we demonize things that we don't understand, but we also demonize, demonize things that are uncomfortable to us because we really don't want to deal with them. And so uh, a lot of pastors, when it comes to drug use, when it comes to alcohol, create an environment within their congregation of intolerance because we just, we don't want to let any weeds in the cracks of our sidewalks. And even though that's erroneous thinking, that's, that's a logic that has become so entrenched that people don't even think about. It.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think I had a um, woman come up to me after one of our community discussions and she said, you know, I feel so really torn about this because I can simultaneously see how the criminal justice system isn't the right tool. And yet my father was an alcoholic and his alcoholism was extremely detrimental to our family. And he was a leader in the church and they never they never addressed it. Then, you know, it, it was just uh, swept under the rug. And so there you had the, uh, a legal substance. And yet it was her, her take was the church just didn't, <laughs> maybe didn't know what to do, didn't want to do anything, didn't maybe have the capacity or the tools to understand it. Um, and so I, I definitely feel that tension myself between, you know, it's a difference in, and not saying this is okay to, to destroy your family through something. And yet also, uh, where are people going to find the kind of uh, connection and community support and um, Welcome to be able to find the restoration and the health that we want people to find. If, you know, as soon as they're struggling, um, they're cast off to the, to the side, which is kind of what you've been talking about. So I I definitely feel the, the struggle in that. And I can sympathize, empathize with pastors who, you know, it, it's easier to kind of have a clear cut line than it is to kind of wade into the deep end of. Incredibly complex issues of substance use and addiction, and you know when is it time to set up good boundaries, and when is it time to bring in and and you know really dive into relationship and all of this kind of thing. So that's that's a that's a helpful um, point. Now shifting to a little bit from away from pastors to congregations, so there was another study that just came out. Um, that found that regular church attendees in rural places were less likely to have compassion for people who use drugs, and they were more likely to support punitive approaches to drug use. Um, so why now they were, um, they were influenced by what they perceived to be their faith leaders perspective. So, you know, if their faith leader kind of landed on one side or the other, that was influential to them. Um, but why do you think it is that that in churches that sort of, we, we look at, um, substance use and, and, and in our own hearts, we say punitive is the right thing to do. Um, maybe more often than not, why do you think that has kind of developed or what, what's driving that good or bad?
1: Well, I, I think one of the elements is it's, uh, the longer I live, the more understand, you know, all of sin and, falling short of the glory of God the sense that uh, we all kind of fight battles they're different battles and I, I agree with with what you say how the clergy and the leadership frame that conversation determines the climate of the congregation they're in uh, James Moore who's a mutual friend of ours and I have talked oftentimes about the, the reaction of people when he tells his story about his son Jeffrey and the overdose And that he's been invited to congregations and then uninvited when they found out his congregation, I mean, his conversation and how he was going to share that story. And so we invited him here uh, to our our congregation. And as he told his story, you could have heard a pin drop. And and what I just watched and thought about uh, kind of in this conversation was, There was almost this sigh of relief within the congregation that says, we're shining the light in a corner. Nobody wants to go in, but we've all been hiding it and dealing with the shame and trying to dance around it when it's an elephant that's in most of our living rooms. And after he had finished, he gave an invitation for people to come up. And there were literally dozens and dozens of families that just flocked to the front of that sanctuary. And came to us afterwards and said, thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with us. And so I think a lot of it loops back to us as clergy and our discomfort with walking into areas that are raw, that are that are hard, that are complex. And we'd rather simplify it to that's right or that's wrong or you made a bad choice when really it's a sense of mental health issues and and many stigmatized arenas that just make us feel so uncomfortable to talk about it because there's no one that hasn't been touched by them and yet there are so few alternatives other than the traditional idea of, of criminalization and vilification of people who are wrestling with it mm.
0: So, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years, um, and I don't actually know with most people. I don't know where they sort of personally stand on, you know, what do you do with drugs? Do you you keep them criminal? Do you just decriminalize possession? Do you actually allow something to be sold legally? Um, What do you feel like is maybe, you know, even if you you don't um, agree completely with the idea of legalization, what? you know, is there anything about that that is compelling to you? Like you could see this could, this could help. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you what's the most compelling reason not to. So this is, this is not a a way to paint you into a corner, but just to say, what do you think about that as you're, as you're wrestling through that beyond sort of how we treat people with just, you know, possession of use, but kind of how we handle the, the bigger question of substances.
1: Well, it's so funny because, you know, my mind rushes to the fact that if I answer this question, I'm going to hell. So, you know, it's kind of it's kind of funny how much <laughs> pressure there is and how kind of intense this is. But for me, just in my reading, but it, it it has to do with my social work background and mental health background in the sense that this is not just uh, an issue of of choosing to do self-destructive stuff, even though choice is an element of it. It's a mental health issue that is that is culture wide, and that our inability to engage this with any sense of compassion. You and I have had the conversation. I I was very involved in American Cancer Society for a long time, and what's really funny is a lot of people don't understand the stigmatization that went with cancer for a long time. People didn't know it was scary thing. We didn't want to know about it, uh, and And yet what happened with cancer is we learned more about it, as we invested more in it, as we did research, we found that it was so much more complicated than finding a one-shot cure to it. And that, you know, sure, people who die of cancer take up a lot of our resources, and sometimes their cancer is self-inflicted, but we would never put them in prison. And so the deal is, is for me, uh, creating standards and a way almost – not just legalization, but a new way of talking about addiction, of seeing it as an illness, as, as a, a mental health issue, as an issue that, I mean, there is no data that shows us that people get cured when we send them to jail. There is, you know, the recidivism rate in the treatment processes that we have that don't treat fully, don't work. Uh, what we do find, and thanks to Chasing the Scream and other people like other books and resources like that, what we do find in other places is, is when you approach this in a medical way, and historically, before the criminalization, the war on drugs, it was already the case uh, that it was treated as a medical, and and the epidemics uh, of it were nothing like they are now. And I think the the biggest testimony to that is, is it's funny how when Uh, The folks involved in the addiction profile changes the attention and how we talk about it with the latest opioid addiction, with that moving to be a middle class, upper class issue. Then all of a sudden there's millions of government dollars to begin to think about, oh, what do we do for treatment? What do we Well, hello, everybody needs this. And the deeper we dig into it, the the reason I think the legalization needs to happen in, in some wise way. And even like you said, as those words come out of my mouth, there's this kind of uh, dualistic response to that. But by by creating a normalized approach, not a criminalized approach, then we begin to give families and those battling with recovery healthier ways to deal with the consequences of their addiction. And so for me, that would be my compelling reason is healing instead of, of, of incarceration
0: what what scares you the most about maybe scares is too strong of a word what concerns you the most or what what do you think is the maybe the biggest like yeah that's that is definitely a big issue of um you know if we move this route let's say we did uh wise legalization of some sort maybe of some substances not others wherever we are in that spectrum what do you think is maybe the the biggest compelling reason why that would be you know, potentially bad or a negative consequence that would come along with that.
1: I, I think finding the balance of that. Uh, I go back to Jim, and I've been talking. We've we've been on a kick for the paraphernalia groups that are now marketing their stuff as candy stores and and things like that. Uh, if an alcohol store can only be so close to a school, you can you know just the whole idea of. Drawing the lines in the sense that there is a safety and a cultural framing of things in a healthy way mm. without creating the wild, wild west where, you know, anything goes because now it's legal. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the the part that keeps me from panicking about that is something I did mention mention in the other is, you know, when you criminalize this, then guess who gets to run it? The criminals. Uh, And when you decriminalize it, then all of a sudden their their role in this changes and and the framing of how this process goes about changes. So uh, my my biggest discomfort is, is that that we are thoughtful and careful and nimble in the way that we move ahead. It's a
0: great point. Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. What encouragement do you have for pastors as maybe something that they could do right now in their churches to help people and families touched by addiction? And I'll add a little caveat here, um, because there, there are people who would, would say, well, you must then want talking about me, um, you know, pastors preaching for, you know, you should vote for legalization. That I personally am not for that. I, I, I think that's a really, um, a dangerous thing for pastors to bind people's consciences about, uh, you know, you need to vote this way or that way on this particular thing or support this law or that law. Um, but pastors can do a lot of things that aren't particularly related to legislation, even in their congregations and the way that they talk and the sermon illustrations that they use, all sorts of things. Um, and that's really where this question is coming from, kind of what encouragement would you give to pastors or people in faith communities of uh, what can they do right now? What have you seen has been helpful for your congregations over the years for families who are um, touched by addiction in some way?
1: Well, I want to say, have a little caveat before I go. The addiction rate among clergy is very high. Hmm. So I would say, first of all, for clergy, look at your own mental health. Um, Many times people are radical in their, Dealing with issues because they're dealing with that issue themselves, mm. and so I I talk to clergy all the time. Have been involved in situations where where clergy have really wrestled with this. So I would say a position you know heal this work on your own mental health. Uh, but the other side, in terms of the ministry side, is make and help your congregations to become places of of safety acceptance, and healing. And, you know, kind of my mantra has been, uh, we don't accept the damage drugs do, drugs do to people's lives, but we accept the people. And it's not the same as love the sinner or hate the sin. It's the sin of just love people. Uh, there are very few people who wake up in the morning and say, hot dog, I'm going to become a drug addict. I want to bust my family up and end up in jail and have my kids taken away. Uh, that, that's not how it happens. And so being places where one of the things we've done here is now recovery is a part of our ministry. You, You know, the story when Jim came to me and just said, you know, I wish there was a church who would have a bake sale for folks in recovery, like they do for folks who are battling cancer. So we, in our church started the road to recovery race and that money goes in the Jeffrey fund that helps people Receive grants in this. We share that regularly. Uh, We host AA here. I'm involved as spiritual direction at one of the recovery centers. And we invite and welcome folks who have come here uh, to be a part. And in in the midst of that, some of the families who battled addiction now uh, do it very openly and, and do it without the shame and the guilt that happens. You know, and and I'm not naive enough to know, you know, there's still churches that battle even the conversation about alcohol, much less drugs. Uh, But it's that sense of the book I was talking about, The Safest Place on Earth. We should be the place where people can bring their wounds, can bring their hurts. And as clergy, we people do look to how we deal with that. They listen and watch to how we dealt with that. And. It does make a difference. And so I would say, read, think, contact you, contact me, you know, just talk to some people who have seen God's redemptive work in this and who have watched families heal or at least process the pain in a much more healthy way.
0: Hmm. As we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important to add?
1: Um, you know, what I do think is, is that, you know, as you and Ended for Good have done such a great job of of bringing this conversation across the state, um, you know, I, I want to say as an individual uh, for the clergy that are watching in for Laity, go to one of the events. Put yourself in a, in the zone of discomfort. None of us like to do that. When I started and did prison ministry, it was really hard to go sit in a cell and be locked up and, and deal with my own fear and discomfort. And and I think in my career, I've found, you know, the most significant ministry happens in the most uncomfortable places.
0: Mm.
1: We have to be willing uh, to do that and to put ourselves there and to face disapproval, uh, to, a fa- to face uh, kind of resistance And at the same time, you know, I I like what you said about we can't become a bully pulpit uh, where we are pushing uh, political agendas. But what we can do is become that safe place um, and and to intentionally uh, help our congregation learn. And and so I I would say to you, uh, kind of ask you a question, and that is, if you were to share some of the resources that you've used, what would it be that you would say a, a, a clergy person could take and begin their journey on exploring this uh, in a way that might help them see things differently?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I always recommend reading Chasing the Screen," which you've read, I've read, um, not because it is particularly Christian, it's not, the author is um, an atheist, but uh, because it gives a, a framework outside of faith, I think, to understand what's really happening uh, related to drugs, like not just in Mississippi, where you and I are, but in the U.S. worldwide, what's kind of the history of where we came from? How did we get some of the things that we have today and those policies? What could we do differently? Now, for me, when I read that book, there was still this question at the end of that book for me of, okay, but my faith is such a huge part of Who I am? Is this is this kind of consistent with my faith or does all of this only make sense if you don't have faith? Um, And so for me, it was just really starting to um, to listen to people who had had personal experiences that maybe I would have cast off before. Um, so listening to people who had been to jail or prison, um, not, not just like, you know, the Hallmark stories on at Christmas time, but listening to people about their real experiences and trying to, to begin to kind of put that, um, put that together to say, okay, if, if my, if my faith for me personally is leading me to kind of support You know, I I want to reduce harm. That's what I, that's my goal with drug policies. I want to be able to reduce harm. Then I I really need to learn and lean into what is going to reduce harm. And is that, that may be something different than I have thought in the past. And, um, and the more that I began to kind of talk about it, the more I began to talk to other people and just ask them their own perspectives and experiences, um, the more I began to realize, wow, there are people with a wealth of information to share. A lot of them don't believe anyone wants to know about it. You know, they have if you've been to jail, you kind of get um you are no longer someone society wants to listen to. We don't trust you anymore. You've, you know, you become an untrustworthy person because you were a criminal and all of those sorts of things. So I think that was a big um a big part of it for me. I did read other books. Nothing that was as helpful to me as um as chasing the scream. Uh, Timothy King's book, Addiction Nation, is helpful. It's from a faith perspective. It's, um, he, he and I would fall in different places theologically. Um, but he has a lot of great connection points there between how we think about, um, these issues from a faith perspective and related to the way that The Bible speaks about the way Christ comes to us and the way that he sees us and the way that we see ourselves and all sorts of those things. So that book was really helpful to me um, as well. But I I think we had um, Bruce Alexander on the podcast um, a while back, kind of in our early podcast, and we did another uh, Facebook live with him. And he said, um, you know, one of the, the best things that anyone can ever do in their life is talk to people. Just go talk to people. They have things that are going to help you, change you, shape you, um, but they're not going to share them if you never ask them and never give them a, a safe place to say, I really want to learn. Can you can you share with me um, what you know? And that, I think, really changed how I understood addiction. And that, for me, was kind of a key cornerstone of once I once I switched from thinking addiction is bad people doing bad things to hurting people trying to feel better. Um, It was kind of this landslide of, wow, I I feel really uncomfortable now with a lot of what we're doing related to addiction, because it is based on the idea that these are bad people who need um, punishment to be able to stop doing their bad things. And so those are some things that have been um, helpful to me. That's a good question. Um, I do
1: think there, as you're thinking the question, I also would have thought about was how do we live in the tension that's between the mental health community and the faith-based community Mm
0: -hmm.
1: stations of psychology versus faith. And, you know, one of the ventures that I've found doing this is discovering Carl Jung's relationship to AA and beginning to see that early on in the psychological community, the tension that they felt in terms of the spirit, the soul or, or whatever the psychological terms were used and then the faith-based communities wrestling with some of the, the practical, mental, physical elements of, of addiction. Uh, it would be so helpful. to. And, and what I've loved about End It For Good is as you've had everybody in the room together. Having this conversation in a way that, that helps us understand that every perspective brings tools and brings uh, opportunities for us to heal. And rather than disdaining the science or disdaining the faith, let's, as you said, let's, let's figure out how to help hurt people.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate your candor and willingness to just come and talk a little bit about your journey.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I, I just want to say that everybody that listens that, that if they haven't been to one of your events uh, that please do that. And the other thing is, is be an instigator, uh, start conversations, not just with the people in your church, but there's not a family that I know that doesn't have a battle with addiction. And, uh, there's not a family that I know that has, uh, not struggled with how to deal with that healthily. And the more we talk about it, the more we engage it, the more we shine light on it, then the better we're going to do in dealing with it.
0: Of that. Um, if you're in Mississippi, come to one of our events. 2022 events are kicking off soon and they will be kicked off by the time this comes out. Um, you can get on our newsletter at enditforgood.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page and you can um, sign up for the newsletter. We'll send out all event links there. Follow us on social media. We put event links there as well. And if you're not in Mississippi, Sign up anyway, because we um, occasionally do virtual events where we do a very similar format to what we do at our in-person events. And we do it virtually so people can come from wherever. And we've had people from other countries come in for that. It's been really awesome. So, Steve, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that?
1: Well, my the email is brosteve13 at gmail.com. Uh, or they can call Heritage uh, United Methodist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um uh, and uh, they will be able to do that. Our website is heritage-umc.org, uh, and, and I would be glad to have a conversation with them. Uh, this has become, as you know, my second call as I retire. I just really feel that this is an arena where uh, God is leading me to try to help people have conversations that move us towards a more healthy way.
0: Fantastic. If you want to get in contact with Steve, brosteve13 at gmail.com. He'd love to hear from you. He's headed towards retirement in the next couple of months. And this is what he wants to do with um, part of the next season of his life is be able to provide some some help and encouragement for people who are engaging in the things that he has been uh, working through over the last decades of his ministry. Thanks so much, Steve.
1: Thank you so much, Christina. Have a great day.
0: All right, you too. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.